let me begin by saying that I've had relationships hurt by deception. Um, Maybe you've experienced this too, but as I was thinking about this sermon, if I was to say like, who's had alcoholism affect their family, everybody would be like, oh yeah, yeah. And if I said, and I did think I did this in a, in a prior sermon in this series, who has been affected by anger in their family? Like who's seen that hurt their family in some way? And it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I said, who's been affected by deception? A lot of you might go, I don't, maybe, but you would point to other sins that maybe surrounded the deception and and that people uh, lied about, the things that people lied about doing. Now, there's there's some obvious ones, you know, if you've had a spouse that was lying about where they were and, uh, or you had a spouse that was lying about where they were and those types of things. But a lot of times, lying, deceit, uh, dishonesty. It, it takes a back seat kind of in our minds when we think about the problems that it causes because oftentimes we, we think lying is almost a symptom of, of the other sins, of the other problems that have been created. And so somebody commits adultery and then they lie about it, but we forget that the lying probably caused some problems too. But if you stop to think for a little bit, then, then you probably can come to the conclusion, I think you could, that, uh, that if there's been lying in your family, if there's been dishonesty, if there's been deceit in your family, then it really has caused some problems. But nonetheless, in our society, we often think of lying as a lesser sin, right? I mean, we think, well, you told a little white lie. We have that term to describe the smallness of certain lies, I guess. And we think like, well, you know, you shouldn't have lied, but at least you didn't, I don't know, kill him. You know, I mean, at least you didn't punch him in the face. At least you didn't yell at them. You know, uh, you shouldn't have lied, but at least you didn't make them feel bad. In fact, sometimes I think we almost value a lie. I don't think we'd admit that. If you're a Christian, you probably wouldn't admit that. Uh, but in our heads and even our hearts, maybe we, we sometimes value a lie and think, well, honesty would have really hurt their feelings, you know? I mean, honesty would have been the bad thing to do. You see this, kind of the old joke is that you don't tell your wife she looks bad in something. Uh, that's not part of our marriage. Uh, I, Brenda doesn't even have to tell me. She just looks at me when she doesn't like something I like. Uh, but I'm, I've been, because I think lying is bad, I've been pretty honest. That's kind of a terrible shirt. Uh, so now she doesn't have to embarrass herself in front of other people, you know? Uh, it can just be me. Uh, but no, I, I think that we think, well, I, you know, I'm just making them feel good. I'm just lying. It's an okay thing to do. The shirt is no good, but what's it going to hurt? It's just a lie. And what we're going to see, I think, in the story that we'll look at today, uh, uh, an amazing story, a famous story. If you've grown up in a church, a story that you, that you probably know, but maybe have never thought about the implications of. What we're going to see is that Deception is deceptively destructive. And I'll probably say that line about 13 times in the next 40 minutes. And so uh, let's just do it one more time now. Deception is deceptively destructive. We think it's only a lie. But what this story says is it's a lie. And it's going to leave a wake of destruction. And I think that you'll see even... 
even for small lies, the things that we'll look at in this story, which is a big lie, by the way. If they're small and big lies, this is a big one. Um, but I think that what you'll see is that even, even in small lies, these things are going to prove to be true. The destruction that we see in this story is going to prove true even in your small, seemingly inconsequential, just saving face or making somebody feel well lies. And the story begins in in Genesis 26, just at the very end, uh, and we'll mainly be in, in chapter 27, but at the end of chapter 26, here's what we read. When Esau, guy we met last week in our story, was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Bere, the Hittite, and also Basamath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They were a source of Greece, grief to Isaac and Rebekah. In her marriage, which for this group of people meant marriage outside of the family, was really bad. Later, when the law is written for the people, a law that Esau wouldn't have had, but he would have understood some of its principles. Later, when the law is written, it says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. God says, look, hey, don't marry outside of our nation at that point because it's going to turn you away from serving God. And Esau marries outside of a godly line of people, outside of his family lineage. And it shows what we talked about last week. And I want to bring it up again because in last week's sermon, I said that Esau was flippant about his family, that he was careless with his family. And you're like, well, man, all he did was, you know, try not to die and sell his birthright. But this proves it further, that when it came to family, Esau just didn't place much value on it. And, and here specifically, by intermarrying, he does a few things. He contracts the marriage himself. Instead of allowing for his dad to do it, which was the norm, which was the healthy thing, which was the good thing in their society. And he says, well, I don't care what my dad thinks. I'm gonna, I think she's good looking and I'm going to marry them. So there's strike number one. Strike number two is that he married an outsider, as I said. But strike number three is that he marries somebody that was outside his mother's line, which we see in this story today, that, that he was supposed to marry in the line of his mother and, and her brother Laban. That's who the mom wanted him to marry. She wanted her children to marry in her family, and he doesn't do that. So strike one, strike two, strike three, and he spurns his mom, and he spurns his family, and all of this says that Esau took lightly the importance, the value that his family had to his life. He has a deficient attitude, as someone said, towards his family's religious heritage, and I would just say his family in general. And, and now we turn to chapter 27, and we see this famous story that involves Esau, but it also involves his deceiving brother Jacob, and here's what we read. When Isaac was old, that's their dad, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man, and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Simple part of the story. 
go out, kill an animal for me, uh, bring it back here, make some food, I'll eat it, and then I'll bless you. And the blessing is a spiritual blessing, as we see in this story, and it implied an oath that could not be withdrawn. How much influence and power it had upon what God did in these children's lives, we can't be sure. We don't know that God's up there going, well, Isaac said this, and so I'm going to do it. But it does seem, as the story of the Bible continues, that the father's blessing proves to be true in the child's life. So he says, I want to give you this blessing, a blessing that would have been about uh, basically two things, procreation, like your ability to have children and how many children and how much your sons will bless you and how far your lineage will carry on and it would have been about material wealth and this kind of what is wrapped up in these blessings and so he says hey you're my oldest son it's actually the son he likes the best if you were here last week you might remember that I want to give you this blessing so go make a meal and let's have a little celebration where I bless you and the story continues now Rebecca that's his wife was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Now, if you knew nothing about this story, you might think like, is this Jacob's mom, Rebecca, and like is Esau her stepson or what's the deal here? Because this is, this is pretty low, right? Like you overhear this conversation, which seems kind of low anyway. She's like eavesdropping. And now she's, she's already put into motion this plan in order to steal the birthright from one of her sons so that her other, or her, the blessing for one of her sons so that the other son can get the blessing. And, and it's not her stepson, it's, uh, it's her biological son. In fact, these guys were twins. She just happens to like Jacob better uh, because it seems he's kind of a refined man, a gentleman. He dresses nicer and he hangs out among the tents. And so she likes him better, and so she concocts this incredible plan to steal the blessing away from her oldest son so that her youngest son might have it. Now, here's what's so interesting in, in this story to me. She says, your father and your brother. And a few weeks ago, I talked about how sometimes in family, one of the worst things we can do is create these needless separations that don't need to be there. Your family, my family. Well, that's your cousin or your child or them and they and versus us and me. Right within our own flesh and blood, our own family lines. And here, maybe just so that the language makes sense, but maybe there's something deeper going on. She's doesn't say my husband or my son. She says your dad and your brother. She's created, I think in her mind, this needless, really destructive separation that did not need to be there, where she's pitted her and her favorite child against her husband and his favorite child. And it causes all kinds 
of problems. And this other thing I want you to notice in that section right there is that she said, in the presence of the Lord, and that gives like really religious, spiritual significance to this thing that's going to take place. The dad isn't just blessing in some kind of nice, hey, I like you better than your brother, and I think you're going to be more successful. He's doing something that at least in their minds is very spiritual. It's connected to the things of God. In fact, they believe that God is going to be in their presence as this event, this blessing takes place. One author said, Rebecca and Jacob are co-conspirators in a grossly offensive ruse that fractures the family for two decades and contributes to the discharge of Jacob for all time. And what we're going to see is the deception is deceptively destructive. The story continues. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. Notice how my voice went up when I said that. I just pictured him talking in a higher voice. But my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would, notice this, this is such fascinating language. I would appear to be tricking him. You are. I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. Now, it was normal for for a touch and a kiss to be part of a greeting between a, a son and a Uh, and his dad, and especially in this type of blessing situation, this event that's about to take place, it would have been normal for them to hug, to embrace, to kiss. And so Jacob goes, hey, wait a minute, put the brakes on here. If I do this, then I may appear to be deceptive, and then I will have a curse in my life. And this is just something that we know. One of the consequences, one of the ways that deception is deceptively destructive is that it causes us to live in a place of fear. What if they find out I am lying to them? Now, some of you maybe have just lied so often and and it's such a normal part of life to just shift the truth to kind of give a little bit of truth and a lot of untruth to kind of dance around the truth, to be deceptive, really. It's so normal for you that maybe you've forgotten this consequence, this aspect of the destructive nature of of deception, but it's still there. When we tell a lie, when we deceive someone, then we must live in a state where we go, what if they find out? And it causes fear. Perhaps little fear if you've lied a lot. For those of us, I think, that have lied less, it causes more fear. It's like, oh no, you know, that's my third lie and I'm going to be found out and I, it's going to be bad and it's going to end terribly and all of those things. But we live with the consequence of fear when we are deceptive. I know that in small examples, like I mentioned earlier, you, you tell your spouse, like, I, I, I really love that shirt, honey. That's a nice one. Go out there. Then just a part of you, just a part maybe, somewhere maybe deep inside goes, oh man, I hope somebody else doesn't tell them it's terrible, you know? And so there's that fear. I, I hope they don't realize, you know, that, that they look ridiculous, I hope. And, and so you just have that fear. But then you think of like the bigger things, like 
You lie to the government and you go, I really hope that I don't go to jail over this. You know what I mean? Like, I really hope that I'm not found out because, because I'm going to face consequences. It might be uh, the penalty of, of uh, fines. It might be the penalty of prison. I mean, people have gone to prison because why? Because they lied. And probably once they got to prison, they breathed a sigh of relief and thought, don't have to hold that in anymore. Lying has this major consequence and that it's, it just sits inside of you, causing you to fear being found out for the thing that you have done. And so many of us know that there have been moments in our lives when we've just faced the music, when we've let the 10,000 pound gorilla out of the cage and just said, I'm going to tell you the truth. And then all of a sudden, you know what happens? We go, feel a little bit better now. You know, I feel better. Because one of the destruction, destructions that, that lying causes, that deception causes, is the consequence of fear. And it continues. So he went out and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goatskins. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. This defines deception, right? I mean, this is like the definition. You open the dictionary and it should have a picture of what is taking place right here in this moment. I mean, this is, this is not a little white lie if we're gauging lies. This is a big lie. And it's going to have big consequences, but I think even in this huge deception that some of you, when you think about this story, don't think about it as negatively as a lot of other stories. You don't, you think maybe somewhere, just maybe deep inside, well, he didn't steal anything, you know? I mean, at least he didn't steal something. At least he didn't fight the guy, you know? At least he didn't kidnap his brother, as we'll see in a story next week, or send him into slavery. I mean, he's just deceiving here. I think that's the tendency. But we're going to see that deception is deceptively destructive, and here the story continues. He went to his father and said, it's Jacob talking to his dad, my father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, This is a blatant lie. I am Esau, your firstborn. Lie number one. Lie number two, I have done as you have told me. Please sit up and eat some of my games so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? Notice this lie. The Lord gave me success. Now he's brought God into his lie. This is what they call blasphemy. Well, God helped me. He replied, then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. Now notice this, now he goes into one word answers. Uh, And some commentators actually believe it's because he knows that his voice is not matching that of his brother. So he shortens the sentences. This is deception. I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, 
he blessed him. Four lies are told. Four lies. And in the midst of those lies, he shows why he's lying and he shows what a jerk he is in lying. He inadvertently makes himself look bad by declaring himself to be the firstborn. Because when he declares himself the firstborn, it's a reminder that the firstborn deserved this blessing that he is seeking out the very reason that he is lying. One commentary writer wrote this, the author exposes the cold, calculating Jacob whose quick-witted mind alters irrevocably the course of history. (laughs) Jacob is blasphemous, he's smooth, he comes up with lies on the spot, he shortens his sentences to to get uh, through without being found out. This is deception. And all of us, I believe, have had moments. Some of us, though, not us, some of you, I think, have made lifestyles out of deceiving people whenever it goes towards your benefit. And Jacob is a guy that you can understand. But either way, we see here that there is this major deception. In fact, he even deceives with a kiss. And there is no worse kiss I don't think ever recorded in the history of the world except for that of Judas who kissed Jesus as he betrayed him before Jesus was led to a cross to be crucified. This is deception. And you know what? It seems like it works out for Jacob. Jacob gets blessed. I'm not going to read you the blessing, but that's how the story, this section of the story ends. His father blesses him, and it's a nice blessing. You're going to rule over your brothers, and you're going to have kids, and you're going to be wealthy and prosperous. It's going to be great for you. And I think that when we lie, that's what we picture. When we are deceptive, that's what we picture. It's going to work out for my benefit. We believe somewhere inside of us that the deception is better for us than the truth. We've already shown one consequence of deception, that it causes fear. But here in this part of the story, you go, wait, there's no consequence there. He comes in, he lies a bunch of times, he's super smooth, and he walks away blessed. But the story doesn't end there. It continues in verses 30 through 40. And it says, After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. I want you to notice this part. This is the dad. Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, notice this, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me too, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully. And took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob, Jacob, which means deceiver? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? 
Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. The crazy part of this story is that Esau comes into the room and you can't see this in English, but in Hebrew, he's actually far more respectful and polite to his elderly dad than Jacob. And not just say that because it makes the story more annoying, right? Like, why is Jacob winning this? Why is he coming out on top? The language says that Isaac, the dad, trembled a great trembling exceedingly the literal translation of the Hebrew. I mean, this is to say that this lie and what takes place here sends this elderly man into a violent shaking because he's so distraught, because he's so hurt, because he's so upset, because he's so scared, because he doesn't know what to do, because he's so freaked out, he trembles. And it says of Esau, he cried a great and exceedingly bitter cry. It's the language used of a person wailing over a great loss or a person who is screaming because they are being violated. The NJPS version of the Bible says he burst into wild and bitter sobbing. And what follows this section is Esau getting from his dad not a blessing but an anti-blessing where he basically says life is going to be rough for you. Esau is the weak dimwit, one author said, but also the victim whose heart-wrenching sobs demonize Jacob. And what we see here is the deception is deceptively destructive in part because it hurts others. It hurts others. You think... I'll just tell a little lie because it's going to make me look better. It's going to move me forward in life. It's going to help me not look bad. And what you forget oftentimes is that other people are crushed by your lies. Now, sometimes it's just little. Sometimes the hurt that it brings to other people's lives is simply the hurt that it's like, do they not trust me enough with the truth? Do they not love me enough to tell me the truth? Do they not think highly enough of me to tell me the truth? Do they think I'm really going to react in such a negative way that they felt the need to lie, to lie to me? And it leaves a person just going, man, that hurts. That you would feel a need to lie to me about that. You're lying to me about something so inconsequential that it makes me feel as though you don't really care about me, nor do you think I care about you. But sometimes the lie hurts others because it leaves people never able to trust again. I'll be honest, I struggle with surprises to this day because I I associate it to being lied to by someone at some point in my life. And so when I hear the word surprise, I get a sick stomach. I I think, just tell me now. I don't want to deal with it later. I just need to know. And it's all because somebody at some point in my life lied to me enough that it left me hurt enough that I just now go, I don't want to be surprised by anything ever. Just let's tell me now. Tell me now. It's not worth it to me. 
when you lie to somebody, it hurts them. And it might not be a short-term pain. It might be something that's long-term, but it will hurt them. If you lie to your spouse, eventually your spouse will have trouble trusting. And they'll think, why did they lie to me? Did they not trust me with that information? Did they not think that I loved them enough? Or they'll go, wow, they've destroyed our family because they've lied to us so many times that it's wrecked everything. Even your small lies hurt people. And you may not see it. This is the thing about lying. It's not like stealing. You stole my phone. I'm going to come to you and say, I'd like my phone back. But when you lied to me, I don't think there's anything I can get back. So I'm not going to come to you and go, you lied to me. I'm just going to say they lied to me. They lied to me. So you think, I got off totally free. I didn't hurt them at all. I don't know anything about the pain that I caused. But somewhere, somebody's sitting there going, man, it hurts that they lied to me. I want you to know that deception is deceptively destructive in part because it hurts people. And it may be a pain that you never see. Punch a guy in the face, they might want to punch you back. You'll see that you hurt them. Take a guy's phone, they're going to ask for it back or they're going to call the police on you. But there's no law and oftentimes there's no response against and towards lying. You lie, you hurt somebody, you never know about it. And that's what makes deception so deceptively destructive is that you think you got away with it and that nobody's bothered by it. In fact, the next verse says Esau held a grudge. It doesn't say he went to his brother, he, he knocked him out, that he yelled at his brother, that he swore at his brother, that he, that he flipped out on his brother. It just says, and we all know this if we've been lied to because we've probably done it too, Esau held a grudge. Isn't that what you do when you're lied to? You go, well, I'm not going to trust them anymore. Or I'm not going to believe them anymore. But you don't often go, you lied to me. He held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the day of mourning for my father, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. I go, oh, death. That's not deceptive. But he never gets killed in the story because here's what happens next. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban and Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you? In one day. Now here's the sad reality. Rebecca does lose both of her sons in one day. Esau, she completely alienates herself from, right? I mean, come on. There's no more relationship there. We don't see any relationship there moving forward. Uh, they didn't like each other to begin with, it seems like. And now this. And Jacob, this is so crazy to me, will never see his mother again, nor will she see him. 
She says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to flee. She goes and talks to the dad and, and says, hey, Isaac, I want my son Jacob to marry for my family. She kind of makes up another lie and says, so send him away. And Isaac sends Jacob away to go be with the other family. And, and I want to just point out, because maybe you didn't notice this, stay with him for a little while. It, it says in some translations, stay for a few days. If you were to go back two sermons and look at the story that we talked about there, going back in time or forward in time, Jacob's gone for 20 years. 20 years. And his mom dies while he's gone. And so Rebecca alienates herself from her favorite child. But Jacob also is separated from his family kind of forever. He leaves on a journey alone. And if you were to keep reading, and you should keep reading in, in this story and see how it ends, but if you go into chapter 28 and you read like the first 20 or so verses, uh, he leaves, his dad sends him on his way, and then it says this, this thing that, that I think is just so profound because it looks like he gets away with his lie. He's blessed. Sure, he'll be gone for a few days, but there's this moment where it says that Jacob found a rock to use for a pillow. He flees out in the wilderness, he's all alone, and he picks up a rock and he uses it for a pillow. And that sounds terrible to me. (laughs) And I was just thinking like, man, it looks so good, right? I mean, he gets away with his lie, his brother isn't going to kill him, and then he's out in the wilderness, totally alone, separated from the mother that has looked out for him and that he loves, scared for his life. Uh, No people to take care of him. Sleeping on a rock. His, His deceit looked like a great idea. It looked good. But then he's using a rock as a pillow. And what I think is true for us is that while deceit sometimes looks like the way to go, it looks like the easy out. It looks sometimes even like the nice thing. It is deceptively destructive and it is going to leave you using a pillow, using a rock as a pillow. Separated from your family, scared for the consequences that might come and knowing that you have hurt people. This story has a super weird ending. Um, and I encourage you, go read it, man. I mean, Genesis is a super interesting book. You should be reading your Bible anywhere, anyway. And so this is a great, we've already started here. You already got most of the story. Keep reading the story because it's, it's really fascinating. But if you just got to Genesis chapter 33, there's this moment where Jacob and Esau have this tearful reconciliation. They're hugging, they're feeling good. And then I just... It's so strange to me. It's like this weird moment in the Bible. Uh, Esau says, hey, let's all travel back to my city together. And Jacob says, eh, better idea. I'll wait till you leave and then I'll come along. And Esau says, well, hey, let me leave some of my people to help you out. And Jacob says, eh, better idea. You guys just go and then I'll catch up later. And then we read this in, in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 33. So that day... Esau started on his way back to Seir, just like he said. Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth, where he built the place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sukkoth. 
Jacob alienates himself from his family in such a profound, terrible way that even after the tearful hug, the forgiveness, the excitement of being able to come back to his land, he still can't fully enter into a relationship with the family that he once had. He still can't bring himself to be honest with his brother Esau and to stay in the same area. And I just want to say that that you think, well, it's just a lie. It won't have a profound effect in the long term. But man, deception is deceptively destructive. And it will bring fear that you may never get over. And it will hurt others. And it will alienate you from your family. I just want to read a couple of verses because... I think given what we've seen in this story, they make more sense than if you just read them and you don't have any background story or anything like that. First, Acts 13, 10. You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Isn't that interesting? I mean, here's... An apostle calling out this man who is not a Christian and, and, and saying, you're wicked, you're wicked. Guess what you're full of? Hatred, murder, idolatry, idolatry, oh. deceit, and trickery. And then John 8, one of the longest descriptions, kind of verse sections about Satan in the whole Bible. You belong to your father, the devil, And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him. When he lies he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Deceit moves you closer to being like the false prophets. If you were to read the whole New Testament. Like the false prophets. And it moves you closer to being like the Antichrist. And it moves you closer to being in John eight forty four To Satan himself. To being like Satan himself. Now if we just heard that out of nowhere. We'd go, wow that's overstated. Calm down on the lies. But when we remember that deception. Perhaps more than any other sin. Is deceptively destructive then it makes sense that Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophets, that what they do best is they deceive people, leaving a wake of destruction that many don't even see from the outside. And in Hebrews 6.18 it says, it is impossible for God to lie. So when we are truthful, we are closer to God, we become more like God. Now here's what I want you to remember, just two things today. The first you could probably guess, deception is deceptively destructive. But here's the other thing. You go, well, don't care, still going to get me out of a few situations. Here's what I want you to know. Every time you lie, you look a lot like Satan. That's what the Bible says. Every time you deceive somebody, you look a lot like the father of lies, Satan himself. Isn't that profound? To me, that's just a profound thought. The weight of that, the gravity of that is different. I'll tell you this. If you lie and it doesn't make you feel bad at all, if you lie and you don't care that you lie, then you need to question who your father actually is. 
Is it really God? Or are you being deceived into thinking it's God by the father of lies who's actually your father, Satan? There is no such thing as a little white lie. There's deception that moves you closer to being like the devil. There's the truth that makes you closer to the heart and the ways of God. And that's true because deception is deceptively destructive and it should be avoided at all costs. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just ask God that we would be people of truth. I mean, Jesus, you declare that you are the way, the truth, and the life. That's an interesting way for you to describe yourself, God. We would think of much greater things culturally, Lord, than just the simple truth. But I pray, God, that you change that in us and that, Lord, we would be a people that would feel the weight of deception. And God, we would be a people who wouldn't think, oh, it's just a small lie, it'll help, it's not gonna be that bad, but we would be a people, Lord, who realize and understand and remember and I think about how deception is deceptively destructive and we would not wanna leave a wake of destruction, God. We would not wanna leave ourselves with the consequence of fear and we wouldn't wanna hurt other people, God, And ultimately, look, God, we would not want to alienate ourselves from others, which, Lord, we all know. If we've been lied to, we know that we push those people who lie to us away, and we never allow for ourselves to enter into a a deeper relationship, Lord, with them. And so, God, I pray uh, that you would move and you would just press this into our hearts, even though, Lord, culture tells us it's not that big a deal. Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen.